0: Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day. The world is changing and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. Stefania, just to get us started, could you... Explain to me what you do as though I'm a five-year-old.
1: So I'm a graphic designer, a visual communication designer, but by accident, about 15 years ago, I ended up working in contracts because looking at contracts, I was just curious to figure out why they hadn't been designed better. There's a lot of money, time at stake with contracts. And to me, being an information designer, it seemed odd that they were so poorly designed. And by design, I don't necessarily mean graphically, but I know that from information design, there are many techniques that we can use to make difficult communication, specialist communication, even scientific or highly technical communication, clearer and opening it up for wider audiences. So my reaction was pretty much, this is not rocket science. This is called information (laughs) design. Why aren't we doing it on contracts? And that's to say it very simply how I started my journey. So my background is in design and I've been working on simplifying contracts, policies, guidelines for close to 15 years. And I ended up writing accidentally a PhD on the topic too.
0: Yeah, an accidental PhD is quite incredible. Yeah, (laughs) because
1: I didn't set up to do it. I never wanted to be an academic. But since I was interested in these things and no one else was doing it back then, the best way to go about it was to do research and be employed as a researcher to to be paid to explore the things that I was interested in.
0: It makes good financial sense. To your point, sort of 10, 15 years ago, these kind of things weren't mentioned anywhere. And they are, I would say, gathering a little bit more popularity. And there's a couple of terms that I see thrown around, which is contract design, legal design. Are they the same thing or is there a difference between these?
1: No, I don't think that they are the same thing. In some respect, contract design is a subset, but only partially is an overlap with legal design. Let's say legal design is much wider. Is To me, is a very wide umbrella. It's like saying design, Without legal in front, you know, there's graphic design, interior design, fashion design. In legal design, I would say that there are many of these specializations within the world of law. And we have to intend it very openly. It's basically applying human-centered design to the world of law. And we can have different phenomena where this world of law manifests, for example, in contracts. And to me, contracts are not fully legal phenomena. They are business, managerial, operational, slash Legal phenomena. For example, so in that case, we would work more on documents, but if we are thinking about access to justice, we are entering into more abstract fields where service design, process design, policy design also enter the picture. So there's different types of design. But what is important is that we are applying a human centered lens to it so that we come up with solutions that, of course, are desirable for the people who are impacted. They make sense for the institution or the business that needs to use them. And then, of course, very strong requirement. They still need to make sense from a legal perspective. But to me, being a designer, it could just be called design. Legal (laughs) is a set of hard requirements, but to me, it doesn't change what I do. I know that other colleagues disagree on that. They feel the legal design is distinctly different. For me, as an information designer working in this field, it's not. If I would be working with medical information or technical information, I would still have a pretty strong requirement. That thing, it has an effect and it's exact,
0: for example. I wanted to ask because I know a lot of people in procurement will not have ever heard of anything that we are talking about right now. And we were just talking before we press record that I was actually speaking to you over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, about helping me with this very let's call it an issue that I was having with contracts that they are complex they were taking a little bit longer than I wanted to make it easier for everyone involved in contracts you mentioned contracts aren't just a legal point they are used by other people in the business your vendors suppliers they're used widely so making them good for everyone just makes sense Stefania could we kind of dive into sort of reimagining procurement contracts here how do we even think about applying contract design or design to procurement contracts?
1: So let's start again from the basics, from the definitions. You asked me before, what is contract design? Let's start from what is not. It's not drafting. Classical drafting is not about substituting legalese with better legalese. And it's not just adding pictures. So it's not purely visual design or styling. I very much like the definition of design as design is how it works, not how it looks. So how I go about it is that contract design is to make something to contracts so that they work better for their intended user, for the intended business scenario, and ultimately for everyone that is involved. So it needs to be more functional. It needs to help us doing what we have set out to do. And we can achieve that increased functionality in different ways. We can look at what the contract says, and we can look at how it says it. So that's why contract design is a team sport. In my team, we have different expertise. I'm an information designer. We have a very experienced in-house lawyer. She has worked for over 20 years in very senior positions in-house, and we have user experience researchers and plain language editors. And depending on the challenge, we need all these perspectives to tackle what it really means. How do we make this document really work for the people that needs to use them? So in this case, how do we make procurement contracts more functional? I would say that part of the challenges are typical challenges of complexity that every contract, also sales side, may have it. But procurement contracts, especially in the public, are quite complex. They are quite hefty in terms of documentation (laughs) and quite heavy on the process. And if I have to boil it down like very simple terms, I think that depending on who's the contractor, there are strategies that are more or less disastrous to manage this complexity. I have money, so I'm paying expensive expertise such as legal advisors to fix it. And in that case, the program grows away, but that's a minority. We don't only have multi-million dollar organizations who can just take out money to make the problem go away. If that is not available, so if we think about micro and small medium enterprises, they ignore anything they don't understand in a tender or in a procurement contract. They guess at meaning based on perception of what it's likely to be normal practice, or then they end up using a disproportionate amount of time and effort to work through it. And disproportionate amount of time and effort is what leads to many very valid contractors and potential suppliers to give up and just not bid. And this does a disservice to buyers too, because the organizations that are most suited to sell smoothly through a tender process are not necessarily the best suited to deliver value post award. So it's two very different set of skill sets and organizational knowledge and even just different in budget. But it's such a huge barrier, especially for those who don't have the budget, don't have the organizational knowledge. It just leaves you at the door, right? So in many of the projects where I've been involved, the main drive was, can we open the door? Can we make that barrier smaller? Especially in the public sphere, there must be a focus, for example, on social purpose. So, Can we solve this problem so how we spend money can be a force for good or for wealth redistribution or for inclusion of certain sectors of society and economy? So reducing this huge barrier, whether you're in the public or in the private sphere, I think it can have very positive impact for the people involved and for the businesses. And if you look at that sphere, ultimately to society. And this is where designing user-friendly, usable, understandable Processes and documents that really go in hand can play a role in taking down this huge barrier.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking back to the problems I was having. And one of them was fundamentally what you just said, which was the smaller companies that we were dealing with were just taking a silly amount of time to agree. Many would perceive to be standard terms, right? It was a master services agreement, nothing particularly fancy or complex about it. They were getting caught up on like minor point, mainly because they didn't have a legal team to go through it and just sanity check it. So they're kind of going about it themselves. Or on the flip side, you mentioned that the smaller organizations sometimes just take it at face value. They just make assumptions about certain clauses. They don't really understand it. And I would hate for one of my vendors to be like that because they could unwittingly and unknowingly take on risks or take on obligations mm. that they can't perform. It's a really good point. I'm just thinking here, Stefania, what are the main challenges to making this work? And I've kind of touched on one, which is potentially people in procurement and even in legal, not even thinking about this as an avenue of improvement. Are there any others of the challenges that you've come across in your work that, cause frustration for you or for your clients?
1: Well, one, another problem I would say is the one size fits all approach that certain procurement organizations seem to have. And as a micro-entrepreneur, I've been on the bad side of it many times. They have procurement contracts, master service agreements that are really carefully drafted, but they have been drafted. Rehearsing the scenario, the most risky scenario. The most valuable yeah. scenario. But one size does not fit all. When you get that documentation, it may not work for the transactional relationship. So organizations really need to assess and create a more dynamic case based portfolio of procurement documents. But that's the same also when you're selling. So, but think about procurement. So, one needs to assess what are the real risks in the transaction and for different scenarios, need to personalize a little bit the approach. So that you neither underprotect or overprotect. And the problem with overprotection is that it increases so much transaction costs. And those costs are not hypothetical. The risk you're trying to protect from are hypothetical, but those costs (laughs) are real and you're going to incur them every single time you insist on negotiating a clause that delays closing the deal for three months. If we would start counting, okay, how many people do we have on this document? How many hours it's taken to negotiate? And we make a very simple math, pay grade by number of people by hours. We would realize how much money we are burning in every single transaction. How much is that in one year? How much is that in five years? Probably the money that we would save could just be put in reserve for taking consciously that risk that, okay, if this very low chance event happens, it's going to be risk, but it may be such low chance that it happens. So perhaps it's better to take, if you make a small calculation, it may still make more economical sense to take that risk and have more relaxed or more realistic risk profile in certain transactions. So we need to use our expertise to really assess... What is it that is going on at the moment? If I'm buying 5,000, 10,000 euros of consultancy services, do I really need
0: to be so hard on certain clauses? I agree. It's something that I've seen time and time again, very high thresholds on insurance premiums, on limits of liability, indemnification. For small companies, they can't even get the cover for that. It means to your point that you mentioned earlier that some in a competitive scene, the smaller companies can't even bid for the work because they're put off in the first place or you just spend this silly amount of time and your basic calculation that you just did is a really powerful way to figure out how much money are we burning every week, every month, every year, on contract negotiations.
1: Assuming that it could be that procurement organization says like, okay, that's your problem. But the smart contractor would say, okay, what is my cost of selling this? I know that yeah. every time I have to deal with this, this company, I'm going to spend, I don't know, one week negotiating. Okay, I'm going to put that in. So it doesn't go anywhere. It's still a loose proposition, this one. And yeah. it's really not the best way to start a new business relationship. Everyone is going to feel so exhausted. Mm. There's no one is going to pop the champagne when we sign the dotted line. We're going to feel so exhausted. We're going to have had attrition for nothing even before really doing the thing. I mean, just thinking, oh, but you want me to sign this because this bad thing can happen and this other bad thing can happen. Basically, we're rehearsing. We are rehearsing for failure in our brain instead of, okay, what can we do to make the best out of it? So we have research on this from management studies, from psychological studies that documents that signal distrust will lead to a relationship in which there is less trust, less goodwill. And on the opposite, we can increase, we can create these tokens of trustworthiness. Trying to communicate in a more transparent, inclusive, culturally aware in some cases, even these sort of manners, that's already part of the communication. That already tells something about us. And all of these are precursors to trust, openness, and goodwill between the parties. That's how I
0: see it. <laughs> I like that way of looking at it. It's something I've been talking about. A different process, which is onboarding vendors, you know, where you typically have to do your due diligence checks and things like that. If you make that process very painful for any one of your vendors, regardless of their size, that can also put their backs up instantly and a bad experience there typically means the relationship starts off a worse manner and if you add contract process or a contract review a contract document that is telling you if you do any of these things we're going to claim back money or we're going to require you to do things that are quite onerous for you instantly like you say the lack of transparency around that because sometimes the terminology the way it's worded the way we were just mentioning Things sometimes broken up in contract documents. They're at the start, they're in the middle, there's a massive appendix, they're all over the place. It can be very hard to follow all of these contractually. Yeah, you're right. The trust and the start of the relationship, you're already going to be tired, right? Exhausted from doing this.
1: Let's say if we have to think about the building blocks. So what are the ingredients of contract design? Of course, there's balance. We talked before about the content. What do you put in and what do you leave out? And then there's relationships. So we have to realize that formality, the very heavy, hard bat (laughs) bludgeon is not the only approach available. And even tone of voice. So how can we have the right tone of voice, the right sounds, talk to certain audiences? And then very important, usability. I mean, if we look at contracts as tools, what is it that they do? What are the micro tasks that people even need to do with that? Like people need to be able to find, understand information and then put that information to practice. So making the gap and jumping the gap between theory and practice or being able to implement into practice what this means. So how I started thinking about contracts is that they should really read as much as possible possible as work instructions. And they need to read like a very good user manual. So with access structures like indexes, headings, prominent headers, different chapters, thematic organization, color coding, examples, perhaps different layouts to suit different content needs and not just wall of text and so on. Because we really need to understand really like the the abilities of who is going to read it and the task, like what, what do they need to do with this? What do they need to be able to do with this contract? Apart from reading it and signing it blindly, but we have signed. Do they understand what it means? For example, as a procurement organization, I would want to know, like, okay, do do my vendors really know what it means? Like, am I really driving compliance through my language? If I give better instructions, I'm actually increasing the chances of my vendors doing the right thing. If they don't understand, well, we go back to, okay, let's try to do something that we think makes sense, but it's not very good risk management strategy, I would say. So, and then you say, okay, how do we do all these lofty things? There are a couple of things you can do. The buttons to push and the lever to pull to design the stuff is plain language, is information architecture and visual design. So this is what we can do on the page to make that information more useful. And then of course we can look through a service design lens to the process. It could be that if we create systems and interfaces, for example, supplier onboarding flows and interfaces, we digitalize that and we make those so good. that basically lead our suppliers to give the information in the right way and do the right action. Then perhaps we can also save a lot of space in trying to explain how you need to do something. That's something else I noticed and encountered in some projects. We could slash away like whole appendices. We're like, okay, just redesign the interface. If you redesign the interface like this and you make it like a hard wired rule that they have to give you this information, otherwise they can't go forward, solved. You don't have to spend 10 pages talking about it, hoping that they understand that they're going to do it and I don't know, send it via email or do something (laughs) a bit old fashioned sending it by fat.
0: That's a really good point though, right? Because contracts sometimes can be overused to get information out of the other party, the vendor or supplier. In this instance, they can be wielded in a way which maybe another process or another method could have got you that information in a better way. So yeah, I like that one. Stefania, could you share any examples? I know we were just talking about this just before we jumped on. And I'll just leave that question nice and open for you to share anything that you're comfortable sharing, really.
1: So I want to talk very briefly about these four different cases. And then you'll tell me which one you want to open up. I just care about sharing with the audience. There is a little bit of range and there can be different angles and different drivers for doing these things. So one case is very old. It's something that I've done for my PhD 10 years ago. So the problem here was civil servants in small municipalities of Finland, not really understanding the public procurement terms. For services in Finland. So they were misapplying it, they were not writing the contract, say, but we have the contract, like now those are just the terms, there's not a contract. And the problem was that those terms were owned by the finance ministry. But the civil servants, and and the document was updated every four years or five through a very lengthy bureaucratic process, (laughs) but association of civil servants wanted to do something now because they knew that they had a problem now. So how can you leverage visual guides or any sort of user guides to help people when you can't change the underlying content? And that's one example of where we can use it. I'm sure that in procurement organizations, you cannot just overhaul everything, but you may have to create different access structures to understanding and you have to put a patch. So guides can be useful in that sense. Then a project from Rob Waller comes to mind with Sinuk Nexon in Canada. And this, here the focus was really on inclusivity, clarity, and respectful language in the design of requests for proposals, because Sinuk is an oil and gas company, and they wanted to create this natural gas pipeline on the lands of these First Nation well, populations. And by law, they have to work with contractors that are from First Nations, so their lands are simply not exploited by white conquerors, yeah. basically, yeah. but their request for proposal letters were so legal, so complex. I mean, even the fact of writing them in legalese things of colonialism yeah. that it was so off-putting that no First Nation supplier was even replying to this request for proposal. Wow. So they had to change. No how, how can we start... How can we be trusted and how can we have a more dialogue and how can we do this in a language that is perceived and respectful? So that was really interesting. Then there is an ongoing project I'm doing now for a company in the utilities sector. And this client of mine wants to redesign their procurement contracts because they want to improve the quality of the contractors in their supply chain. And it's crucial for them because some contractors are mission critical. And even just a small mistake can create disastrous consequences for the public and for them. And their bet is that by making contracts simpler and fairer, they can become a more attractive client for the suppliers they can attract smarter people, they can attract better, more responsive, more creative, more innovative suppliers. And we're in the middle of the project in this moment, so perhaps I can't say much into this, but I I found that what was very interesting was the motivation for the client. We need to be more attractive clients. Yeah. We need to attract better high quality. We need to build a high quality supply chain. I can say in the first round, we managed to shorten the documents by around 30, 35% and wow. reduce the sentence complexity. We're using this tool called TIGIM, T-I-G-I-M to have different metrics on language. And we managed to basically make most of the very complex sentences or very long sentences go. So now it has a much better, it should be much clearer also to understand. So that's an important thing that we are not just doing these things, putting a a finger up in the air, but there are metrics that can nudge you in in the right direction. Last but not least, this was a very collaborative work because as part of the UK GDS, So the government digital services, there used to be this global digital marketplace, now suddenly disbanded project. And they were helping partner governments around the world to improve their public procurement practices. And in one project that we did together, we helped the Procurement Agency of Indonesia to redesign their standard procurement document. And we started this project when COVID struck, so we had to do this design (laughs) sprint virtual across quite wide time zone gap and <laughs> yeah. translators. But in the end, we managed to pull out these design sprints with the civil servants. We did research together. We helped them build, test and refine the prototypes and the result of the work. Ended up being used for a little bit different purpose. So not for the IT procurement, but for the in-house procurement. And we have to connect basically next month to figure out the impact. Or I also don't know the rest of the story because there are a bit of language barriers, so to speak. But we have done research up to the user testing phase, so just before the launch, and that was really positive. We tested both with the potential suppliers, but also with the procurement teams who need to use these templates to create the actual tender. So we had two audiences to cater to. So it was a very complex project, I would say. There were really many challenges just dictated by language barriers, time zone barriers, a pandemic, very sizable documents, uh, translations, doing research remotely, and, and so on. But uh, it works su- surprisingly well. That was perhaps the biggest takeaway.
0: Yeah, there were some nice examples there. I just wanted to, I'm very conscious of time here, Stefania, but on the First Nations example of trying to get First Nation people from the First Nations to bid in for work, was that, Primarily a focus on language in the contracts or just the, the look? Like what was the big thing? It was
1: thing both. They, Rob Waller's team conducted research both with the stakeholders, but also with suppliers from Aboriginal backgrounds. So they wanted to understand, OK, why are you reacting this way and what should work? So they made like many different changes. Of course, using plain language is the first step. But as I'm never tired, piping about information architecture is really important. So, for example, where do we put things? In this case, they reorganized this RFP. There was the letter. And then the attachments were guides. So guide to apply, guide to pricing, guide for invoicing, like to explain them things. Like how do you need to do things if you participate? Another smart thing they did was to apply the design principle of progressive disclosure. So when I'm sending out an RFP letter, I don't want to send out 100 pages with my general terms. I'm going to send out a very clear, you know, a sort of ID card like, hey, we are these guys, we are doing these projects, we want to work with people like you. This is what the project is about. These are Mm -hmm. what the requirements are about. And the last page on this very much shorter package was, are you interested? Fill in this form. So it was also like designing a different process. So they managed to attract more people say, yes, I'm interested. Tell me more. That already, let's say, created a pipeline. And with those people that were in the pipeline, then you can say, okay, now we're sending you more information. Like these right. are our terms. These are the other information that you may know. And only at that point, they would ask them, okay, s- submit a proposal. Okay, let's make what is easy for us, which is, okay, let's put all the documentation in one. One size fit all, let's put all the hundred pages, terms, and conditions, <laughs> and let's send it out. Oh, no one replies. But yeah. how did you ask that? I mean, a request for proposal is a question. How did you ask the question? Yeah. It was a question that warranted a reply. So even if we're using documents, it's really like a conversation. We have to design keeping in mind people's behaviors, people's psychology, people's values, people's feeling. Because that is what drives human behavior, what people ultimately do is whether what is going to make a contract happen or not. Contracts don't make anything happen by themselves. You need to co-opt people to have certain behaviors, right? So you need to have a very good grasp of how you talk to people, how you disclose information, how do you support them doing the right actions along a certain happy path
0: that was really insightful Stefania. i think a lot of teams even dealing with far less sensitive requests that issuing out struggle here to garner the attention of their supply chain to actually bid in i was dipping into report on public procurement in the uk that was just launched a week or two ago and it was talking about the lack of competitive bids in competitive scenarios tenders information to senders rfps and typically i think the approach you just noted which is send everything up front because it's convenient is a massive put-off a lot of the time and can overwhelm even a bigger size vendor or supplier so yeah that's a really good point stephanie i just want to change tack now thank you so much for that was a really good insight actually i really enjoyed that we asked two questions at the end of every episode and these are like quick fire questions so don't think too much about these the first one is, what's one piece of tech, whether software or hardware, that you absolutely cannot live without?
1: Probably mobile phone.
0: I think maybe 50 to 70% of guests so far have said that. It's, you're it's so right. It's, uh, I mean,
1: not, not much the piece of hardware, but everything you can do with it. So I mean, right. just the fact that you are on the beach or on the bus and something urgent work related, something work related comes out and you can solve it without having to think about, oh my God how to think about it tomorrow i can't do anything about it for a slightly anxious person as i am that would be a nightmare (laughs) so okay this thing happened i can do it now it gives me more sense of control (laughs) on the other hand like you can be hounded and you have to switch off every possible notification when you're on holiday otherwise you're going to look into that but still i think it's still something i would struggle without
0: yeah, that's interesting. I'm kind of similar to you, although I've done the exact opposite to you and I've removed all notifications and anything to do with work is not on my phone, which is slightly, it's a weird experience. Let's say I've been tested. Like I do it when I'm on now.
1: holidays. When I'm on holidays, I remove, yeah. I block everything and then unlock it when when I come back.
0: I feel like I could probably do most of my tasks just on my phone now. You don't necessarily need to be sat like we are right now for mm-hmm. this conversation at a desk with a computer the last question is a slightly weird one stefania that we ask which is i am a procurement genie and you can put a contract slant on this absolutely as part of the procurement lifecycle so i'm a procurement genie you have one wish what would that wish be
1: i'd like very simple very realistic in the risk-based approach contracts as Mm. a micro-entrepreneur I would like <laughs> <Yeah>. that procurement <laughs> contracts would be easier for me to accept without having to use too much resources yeah. to negotiate them or making them fit or really make them understand like, ah, you know, we're you're not buying a million dollar of services <laughs> from me. So maybe this thing doesn't make sense. It shouldn't have been there. Yeah, more personalized or more context-based approach when you're reaching out to us small ones
0: agree completely with you there. And Stefania, where can people find you? Where's the best place? Uh, to be?
1: You can g- Google me up. <laughs> you can yeah. find me on LinkedIn.
0: <laughs> awesome. We'll leave some links in the show notes and description. But once again, Stefania, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www.gatekeeperhq.com, And then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, thanks for listening.